Well, please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 29, Isaiah chapter 29, where we'll pick up at verse 15 this morning. Isaiah chapter 29, reading from verse 15, this is the third of six laments in this section of the book of Isaiah. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Is it yet not a little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? And that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. Amen. Well, in the first two oracles of woe, in the first two laments that begin this series of six that Isaiah brings to the people of Judah in the early seventh century BC. Uh, Judah has been given two solemn warnings of what will happen to them if they do not turn from their pride and self-sufficiency and humble themselves before the Lord and acknowledge His fundamental centrality in their lives and society. The scene, the, the situation, you remember, is that Judah here is on the verge of making an alliance with Egypt to try and get from them some level of protection against the Assyrians. Now, this was a day of the rise and fall of empires. This was a, a day when the spring was the season when kings would go out to battle. It was a day when the major powers sought to increase their dominance and the minor powers sought to pick the right side in this political gamble that they might not be consumed but preserved. And in the midst of it, having forgotten that Yahweh, Je Jehovah, was their true king, trying to find security and safety and diplomacy, Judah were on the verge of courting Egypt as their patron defender. It was, of course, as chapter 28 put it, a covenant with death. It was an agreement with the grave. And inevitably, Egypt would turn against Judah and consume them if they had half a chance, if the opportunity presented itself and 
if it had advanced their own claims to dominance over the, the Levant, that, that fertile region between the Mediterranean Sea and the Arabian Desert, Egypt would in a heartbeat turn against Judah. It was a covenant with death. It was an agreement with the grave. It was built on the premise that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But of course, the enemy of your enemy can just become your enemy as well. But right now, as the sabers rattled around them, for Judah, it appeared that Egypt was their best bet. But as the Lord warned, Assyria was not actually their greatest threat. Now, he was. As God warned in chapter 28, verse 17, I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. For their rejection of Yahweh, for their deafness to His word and their scoffing of Isaiah's preaching, God has made it clear that He Himself will be the one to devastate them. Jerusalem will become, as we saw last week, like an aerial, the whole city like the hearth of an altar, burned, consumed by the holiness of God as He vindicates His honor amongst the people called by His name. But remember, we've said this before, but we have to keep it in our minds as we go through this. Judah stands here not so much as a geopolitical entity, but as the covenanted people of God, right? Their significance in this narrative is not that of a country as it is as that of a church. The tragedy of this situation, the tragedy that gives all of this narrative its particular power is that Jerusalem is the covenanted people of God, the very church of God, and it has lost its first love. At the heart of this situation was the reality that Judah had forgotten the promises that God had made to them. Or worse, Judah remembered the promises that God had made to them, but they didn't believe that God could be trusted to do what He had said. And of course, the Lord cannot just let that stand. It's blasphemy. It's a grotesque distortion of His character. He is not only the God who speaks, but He is the God who promises and the God who sh will surely bring His promises to their fulfillment. And so God must vindicate His honor. And so He resolves to do so by devastating His faithless people. And to our modern sensibilities, that this just seems unthinkable. It seems so barbaric, so medieval. Surely, Modern Christians don't think about their God like this. But as we've repeatedly said over the past couple of weeks, as we've repeatedly observed through our journey through the book of Isaiah, none of this is born of bad temper or cruelty on the part of God. This is not Zeus hurling lightning bolts from heaven to terrorize humans so that he can get his way. In the ancient world, the gods were thought of as unpredictable and capricious and liable to terrible fits of anger. But you understand, this is not that. 
This is not God just losing his cool because Judah have pushed him too far instead. As painful as these things will be, their intended purpose is never to destroy Judah, not even really to punish Judah. Its intended aim is to restore Judah. Do you remember how we saw that at the end of our passage last week? Verse 13, the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, verse 14, Behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. It was the promise that through all of this, God's purpose was simply to beautify His people and cleanse them of their unbelief. It was the purpose of that extended agricultural illustration at the end of chapter 28. The violence that a farmer does to his fields and to his grain is not as senseless as it might first appear to be. But rather, it's got an intended aim that the field would become fruitful and the seed would be useful. Now, all of this is hard medicine for sure but it's hard medicine that's intended as a cure. What Isaiah is describing here is almost, if we can say it this way, it's it's spiritual chemotherapy. It's a, a poison being administered by God, but only so that healing might result. Hard times would come, But they would come not to punish so much as to call the people of God back from their pride and self-reliance, back to lives of humble, joyful obedience before the living God. But now, as we come to this third lament, because God is surpassingly good and kind, in this third lament, the focus is not so much on the ways in which Judah have gone wrong, though as we'll see in a minute, that's certainly in there. But here now, God opens up this lament in which He explains the fullness of His rich promises of grace for this disobedient people. Now, this passage opens, of course, as we read, with a restatement of the situation, exposing the sinful hearts of these wandering Judeans from yet another angle. It's described this time like a man who thinks he can get away with something because no one knows about it. Now, when I was a freshman at university, in a philosophy class that I took, you, you've probably gone through the same material. It's material that when you're a freshman just seems so profound and you feel like you're the first person ever to have read this, but really every freshman class reads it. We, we read in Plato's Republic, and we write about the ring of Gyges, a ring that, when it is put on, makes the wearer invisible. And in the Republic, the moral philosophical question is posed as to whether or not a man could be so virtuous that he could resist doing evil even if he knew there was absolutely no fear of detection. And the conclusion is that a man is just not willingly, or because he thinks that justice is any good to him individually, but of of necessity. For wherever anyone thinks that he can safely be unjust, there he is unjust. 
You might think that's a little cynical. I think it's a tremendous common grace insight into the nature of a sinful heart. There are few of us who are as wicked in public as we are in private. Think about extreme cases. Domestic abuse happens behind closed doors because an abusive husband feels free to hit his wife if he thinks no one will ever find out about it. More money is stolen through fraud than robbery because a thief is emboldened by thinking that his identity is hidden and no one can see him commit the act. Why is it that since the rise of the internet, the consumption of pornography has gone through the roof? It's because you no longer have to go into a store and buy something. Anonymity leads to wickedness. Or think about more mundane cases. Your thought life is far more wicked than your words or your actions would ever betray. You will think things about people that you would never dare say about them. You will likely watch something on TV alone that you would not be comfortable watching in a room of other Christians. Or, even if it doesn't rise to the level of abuse, your words to your spouse will likely be more harsh in private than they would ever be in public. That feeling of being hidden leads us to wickedness. And it's the thought that God identifies here in Judah. They have resolved that God cannot see what they do. They have resolved that God cannot know what they do, and so they can sin with impunity. It is this idea that we've mentioned before that God is this feeble old man sitting up in the temple, and his eyesight is so weak that he cannot see down the temple mount so that they can come up and go through the motions of worship, and then they can go back down and do whatever they please, and they can do it freely because God will never know. They wear the ring of gyges, and their invisibility gives them free license. But of course, it is a danger for us, isn't it? Might we come to worship, and we look respectable, and we go through the motions, and we say the right things. But as we have just outlined in private, at home, our actions, our thoughts, our words, if they were observed, might make it seem that we think that God cannot hear the words that come out of our mouths. The way we act in private might make it seem that we believe that God does not see what we do. We read this, and you understand this is a sobering mirror to us. But even more than that, verse 16, the Judeans have convinced themselves that they are actually in the place of God, that they are the ones who are in the position of control in their relationship with Him. It's a way of understanding our relationship to God that sees Him as existing essentially for our benefit, as if He is some kind of cosmic butler standing in the corner waiting to be summoned to do our will. Judah had fallen into a transactional understanding of how we relate to God, as if God could be manipulated into doing our bidding, wriggling out from any sense that our being in relationship with Him as binding consequences for their lives, the Judeans had flipped it on its head as if God was now bound to do what they wanted Him to do. As Isaiah says in verse 16, it's completely upside down. It's absurd as the clay declaring that it is in control of the potter. 
again, we know that this is not an idea that is a million miles away from us, is it? In fact, this way of relating to God is one that is absolutely rampant in America. In 2005, sociologist Christian Smith, in his book Soul Searching, famously said the de facto dominant religion among contemporary U.S. teenagers is what we might call moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a religion that's made up of five main components. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. This idea that God created the world and He watches over it, but He doesn't intervene in human affairs. Secondly, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Right? The goal of religion is to be a nice and moral person. Thirdly, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. The, the most important thing in life is to have a good self-esteem and to be happy and well-balanced. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. In other words, salvation is accomplished through morality. It is a religion that can sound like Christianity. It's a religion that can look like Christianity. But you understand it's not Christianity because it is based on an understanding of God that is altogether too small. And it is based on an understanding of the creator-creature relationship that is topsy-turvy and upside down. What God has been saying throughout these laments and what he says again here for emphasis is that he will not let this stand. He will not be caricatured amongst his people. He will not be diminished. He will be glorified in his church. And he will, if necessary, administer a hard discipline to help his prideful people see that we are indeed merely creatures, that we are the clay, that we are, as Martin Luther would put it, creatures made of dust and ashes and full of sin, that we are not nearly as clever as we like to think that we are, and that in reality, 1 Corinthians 3.19, the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. And so rotating the Judeans' hard hearts one more time to show another facet of it, God shows them where they have gone wrong into this tremendous pride and presumption. But that is not the emphasis in this lament. As important as it is, as much as it builds on everything that God has said previously, notice how the emphasis here, in fact, changes. And in the wake of such severe predictions of devastation, in the wake of such sobering warnings of how God will humble His prideful people, we find here really an extended meditation on what this will all achieve. The result, as we have said, of this coming devastation is not destruction, but restoration. We have been given glorious glimpses of this in the prior two laments, but here it's elaborated in a vision of a beautiful future for the church is filled out. Look at verse 17. Isaiah sees the great forests of Lebanon really is emblematic of human pride and achievement, and he says it will all be felled by God. But not just to become a wasteland, 
but so that that clearing would be cultivated by God and that field will be sown and grow and blossom and the fruit of that field will become itself like a mighty forest. It's Isaiah's way of saying that in the economy of God, the first will be last and the last will be first. Human pride humbled to be replaced by the beauty of God's restoration. Or look at verse 18. What will be the result of God's hard medicine? It will be that those blind eyes that refuse to read the Word of God in verses 11 and 12 will now be opened to behold the magnificence of God's glory and grace. The deaf ears that in chapter 28 scoffed at preaching will hear now the life-giving Word of God. Or look perhaps most importantly, at verse 23 and verse 24. God says, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. Do you understand what that passage is describing? Right here is a people who have who have made this caricature of God as this feeble old man who does not see what they are doing. But here is this people who have so twisted the creature-creator relationship that that they have put themselves in the driving seat, that they have created this proto-moralistic therapeutic deism. And God says, you want to know what I'm going to do with them? I'm going to so transform them that they will declare my holiness. I will so transform them that they will delight in me as I am, not as they have made me to be. They will, I will turn them, I will purify them, I will beautify them. So in this rebellious people, the glory of God will be manifest and this people will come again to delight themselves in me. What Isaiah is describing is what Malachi describes in Malachi 3, isn't it? And speaking of a, of a messenger of God, a foreign invader who would bring devastation upon Jerusalem, Malachi says he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in in former years. Why why does God do this? Why does He bring this invasion? Why does He threaten Judah of this, this coming invasion? Why will He indeed bring this invasion when they do not repent at Isaiah's preaching? not just to crush these rebels. He doesn't do it with a Zeus-like lightning bolt just to to zap these presumptuous Judeans. Why doesn't God just crush the impertinence of the modern church? Why doesn't He just wipe us out in an instant because we have so warped and twisted our relationship to Him and spoke so inadequately of Him? Why doesn't God just squash you like an ant, when you think unworthy thoughts of Him, when you try to twist your relationship with Him into this transaction in which you hold all the cards. He could, couldn't He? 
right? He's sovereign. God can do what he pleases. He could just wipe away his faithless people. Why would he go to all the bother of calling the Assyrians to come and devastate the land, but not utterly destroy the people? Why would he go to all the bother of sending prophet after prophet so that his people would know how to understand the hardships and afflictions that were come to come upon them? It almost seems too much, doesn't it? And when we see Judah's sin described from so many angles, when we see the depth of the wickedness that come in had come into the people of God, when we see their presumption and their faithlessness and their pride and their self-sufficiency, why on earth would God persevere with a people like this? Right, or as you see your own sin reflected in this, do you sit here and hopefully this morning feel something of a pit of conviction in your stomach as you see yourself reflected in this passage? Why on earth Would God persevere with you? Surely you give him a thousand reasons every day just to flick you away, just to strike you down. How dare you be so presumptuous with this holy God? Why would he persevere? Well, we're told here why. It's because he is a covenantal God. And it's because he has promised to make of the descendants of Abraham a mighty and glorious nation of the redeemed. That's why, verse 22, really the hinge verse of this passage, God is identified as the Lord who redeemed Abraham. And that is the glorious context for understanding all of this. Why doesn't God just wash his hands of his foolish people? Because in his covenant with Abraham, he promised not to. In Genesis 12, God promised to Abraham that he would make of him a great nation through which all the families of the earth would be blessed. In Genesis 13, God promised that the offspring of Abraham would outnumber the dust of the earth. In Genesis 15, God promised that the offspring of Abraham would outnumber the stars of the sky. In Genesis 17, God promised to Abraham that he would make him exceedingly fruitful and that he would make him into nations and kings would come from him. And God promised Abraham that this covenant that he made with him would be an everlasting covenant. That God's promise to Abraham to be a God to him and to his offspring after him was a promise that would never be broken. And that's what lies at the root of all of this. Do you remember our definition of God's mercy? God's mercy is His steady and persistent refusal to be rid of His disobedient children. God's mercy is His steady and persistent refusal to be rid of His disobedient children. Why on earth would a great and glorious God, holy and righteous, as we saw vividly in Isaiah 6, why would the King of all creation, the eternal, infinite, triune God, why on earth would He steadily and persistently refuse to be rid of His disobedient children, to be rid of you, Christian? It's because He promised. That's it. That's all. It's because He promised. So that, that is... What is at work in all of this? That's what's on glorious display here. God outworking His promise to Abraham. Judah, or it would seem, trying their best to get God 
to reject them. But he won't do it because he's promised. And so he's committed to doing the hard work to purify his people, to beautify his people, so that when Jacob, to whom the covenant with Abraham was repeated, so that when Jacob, metaphorically, verse 22, looks now on his children, he doesn't need to bury his face in his hands in shame at what they have become, but rather he will be able to look upon them and see them as this beautified, glorious people who stand in awe of this holy God, humbling themselves before Him and living lives of adoration. But we might ask, how can God do this? The, the why, why would God do this? That's the Abrahamic covenant, right? That God has promised and He will do what He has said. But, but now we have to ask, well, how can God do this? If God is that glorious, holy God of Isaiah chapter 6, how can He be so patient with Judah? How can He be so patient with me? How can a holy God persevere so kindly with people who twist and turn in a constant attempt to gain the upper hand? How can he be so good to sinners like us that he would not just destroy us with that lightning bolt, but continue on kindly, showing us our weakness and our sin so that we might return to him in faith and obedience? And it's a nice thought, isn't it? But surely it runs counter to his nature as a holy and righteous God. Well, you understand the key to that too is found in the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 15, when God, having promised Abraham that he would make his descendants outnumber the stars of the sky, God appeared to Abraham and appeared as a smoking fire pot. And in Genesis 15, God commands Abraham to lay out a series of animals, most of which are split head to toe, and God appears to Abraham as the smoking fire pot that moves between the two divided pieces. And to our minds, this is strange. But Abraham would have known exactly what it meant. This was an ancient treaty form. When an alliance was made between two kings, the lesser king would walk between the divided animals, symbolically saying, if I break this covenant, then let what has happened to these animals be done to me. But astonishingly, in this vision, it is not the lesser king, Abraham, who walks between the parts, but the greater king. It is God Himself who goes before the parts, God Himself taking the burden of the covenant upon Himself, saying symbolically that if this covenant was broken, then He would bear the price. The covenant promise kept because God will take upon Himself the burden of its terms. And you understand that's the very thing that we commemorate as we come to the Lord's table this morning. The cross of Christ was the fulfillment of Genesis 15. It was God bearing the cost of our covenant disobedience. It was God Himself in His unimaginable grace taking the cost of our covenant disobedience, paying His own price for our sins, bearing His own wrath against our sins so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God and even called His children. It is God taking upon Himself the full cost of our covenant disobedience, 
taking upon himself the full wrath of God against our sins so that he could deal kindly with us in our sins, so that he could steadily and persistently refuse to be rid of us. That's the cross of Christ. It underpins all of this. It underpins how God deals with you, Christian. There are going to be times in your life when God's strange work will enter in, and you will wonder what God is doing, and you may well wonder if it means that God does not love you anymore. And there will be times when you might wonder if maybe now you've blown it. Now you've gone too far. Now you've indulged that sin one time too many, and God has turned away from you. But listen, if you have your faith in Christ, then the cross says to you, while you might not always understand the ways of God, you can always trust Him. Romans 8.28 is one of these verses that we are sometimes in danger of repeating so much that it becomes a cliche. But listen, Christian, don't, don't let it. Romans 8.32 is a precious and important anchor for your soul. God did not spare His own Son, but gave, us, gave Him up for us all. How will He then, not also with Him, graciously give us all things? That's what we're talking about. The covenant of, of a, with Abraham fulfilled in the cross of Christ, in God giving up His own Son for us. And if that has happened, then how will God then not give us all things? Ray Ortland once wrote, the gospel equips us with large understandings of God so that we can make large allowances for the full range of His ways and stop resenting Him and meekly surrender to the deep work of renewal He wants to accomplish in us. I think that's what this passage is saying anchored in the promises that God made with Abraham, anchored to those promises, now manifest to us in Jesus Christ, now secured to us in Jesus Christ, we are able to humble ourselves before God and say that while we might not always know what God is doing, while we might not always understand how everything in our life is good, we know that God is good. And that is enough for us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we continue to go through the book of Isaiah, as we continue to go through these laments, we find sobering reflections of ourselves in each of these passages. But Lord, these are good passages. Passages that open to us more and more the compassionate heart of God for sinners in Christ. Oh, Lord, you are a God who has promised to bless your people. And you cannot break your promises. And so we pray that as we continue on through our lives, as we bear at times that strange work of God designed to purify us and refine us, Lord, help us to hold on to that. To remember that because of your covenant promises, we know that you are never cruel or unkind. Because of the cross of Christ, we know that you are never cruel or unkind. But that we would go through it, fixing our eyes on Jesus, humbling ourselves before you, and delighting that you love us so much 
that you will bring us into the refiner's fire. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.